0: or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Would you remain standing a while longer and please keep your Bibles open as we will be using them quite a bit. Lord, thank you for John chapter 14. And now we ask that you'd grant to us an extra portion of your grace and mercy, that your spirit would show us what these words mean and how we ought to believe. May we be formed and informed by your holy word. Draw us close now to the Savior, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well... Good morning. It's a dense one, you guys. So, we've been in the sermon series in the Gospel of John where we have been tracing throughout the Gospel all the times in which Jesus says, I am. And this morning, as you just heard, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is a very famous verse. But it's also an outrageous claim. And it's been a troubling verse for a lot of modern people, especially people in this terrific city of Denver. And the fact that it's troubling is quite interesting because when Jesus said it, when he said those precious words about himself, he was saying them in order to bring comfort. And let me explain. In the Gospel of John, From chapters 13 to chapter 17, that comprises a very big portion of the whole gospel. And that section is called, sometimes theologians call it the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. It's one big section. Now, the Sunday before this, where our passage takes place, Jesus had paraded into Jerusalem in the most peculiar way on a donkey. It's, uh, you know, this, this is known as the triumphal entry. And Jesus was returning to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which is a particular festival uh, that Israel celebrates. It's the most defining event in their religion. It's the Exodus. And so Jesus is in town. And so he takes his friends up into the secret room of sorts. It's called the upper room. He washes their feet and he celebrates with them this very ritualistic uh, you know, Jewish Passover meal. It's called the Seder meal, and uh, th- what they didn't know, what the disciples didn't know, is that this would be Jesus's very last supper with them. And so, the, the the very next day, you know, if you were to continue reading, he would be arrested, and he, of course, would be heading straight to the to the cross to fulfill his destiny. Well, during this dinner in the upper room, the Gospel of John records very intimate conversations that Jesus had with his friends. Just, in fact, right before the passage that we studied, he tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him, one of them is going to deny him, and then after all of that, he's going to be leaving them. Now, you and I know the story. We know exactly what Jesus is alluding to, but they didn't. They knew something strange was happening. I mean, after all, who enters a city on a donkey with people lining up the streets saying, Hosanna in the highest. You know, the disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They had seen his miracles and all they've heard his cryptic whispers about his imminent death and all of that seemed to be coming to a head. And the tension in the air must have been so thick because Jesus noticed it. Jesus looks at his very best friends and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. That word troubled in the Greek is extremely vivid. It means to be like stirred up. It means to be jerked around in all these various directions, to be shaken up like a bartender making a drink. And the point is, the hearts of the disciples were deeply unsettled. There would be betrayal. There would be denial. And their beloved rabbi would be leaving them. Now, when you and I hear that word rabbi, it's kind of hard for modern people to understand exactly that person's role. Uh, So, for instance, like if you and I were to think about like a spiritual leader— Uh, we kind of think of like one person who composes a small part of the overall portfolio of one's heart. That spiritual leader would take his or her place alongside a therapist, a personal trainer, a life coach, or a mentor. And the point is, a lot of different people make contributions to help you form your worldview. That is not how rabbis in the first century worked. A rabbi didn't so much as help you to form your worldview so much as he told you your worldview. You would be his disciple alongside a gathering of other disciples and a rabbi was the center of orbit for his disciples. And I bring this up because it's gonna help us understand how Jesus, with that kind of authority, teaches us about God. Jesus is going to make this outrageous claim about God and himself. And his perspective is not one that should be taken into a portfolio of other ideas. What he says stands alone. Jesus is gonna tell us about God. But listen, he tells us about God in the context of troubled hearts to comfort them. And do you know why this is significant? Our view of God is indelibly marked and shaped by our greatest pain points. Like maybe you grew up in the church or maybe you lived most of your life not really thinking that much of it. But inevitably, everyone came to a point in their life, that was a game changer for how you see God and how you perceive him. And it's usually related somehow to tragedy or great pain or loss. See, we look through our pain and our tragedy to see what God is like. We usually look through our worst pain to try to understand him. You say, I, I thought I knew what God was like. And then the diagnosis came in and then I saw what God was really like. I thought I knew what God was like, but then I lost my spouse. I lost my child. I lost my job, my reputation. And it's so much worse than what everyone else sees. And you think to yourself, oh, now I, now I see what God is really like. God, let this happen. It is so easy to look at your worst pain and say, I guess we know what God is really like. But here, Jesus doesn't let us do that. And he's not, he's not insensitive to your pain either. He looked at the troubled hearts of his best friends and he offered the only thing that can truly cure a troubled heart. And this is really important to notice because not only... Not only is Jesus aware of his own painful future that is about to happen, but he knows the painful future that his friends, that's on the horizon for his friends, these disciples, he knows that some of them are gonna be sawn in two. Some of them are gonna be impaled on stakes. Some of them are gonna be covered with pitch and lit on fire. Some are gonna be tied to different animals and pulled apart. The only one that didn't die would be boiled alive and then exiled to an island that's really a penal colony. And and, you know, Jesus could have strengthened them in their pain by talking about his power to execute justice, to to bring wrongdoers into account. He could have even given them consolation by speaking of his resurrection and theirs, but he doesn't, not here anyways. How does Jesus... Care for their troubled hearts? Well, he promises a home beyond this world. Jesus wants to cure your troubled hearts, but you can't look at him through your worst pain point. You have to look at him for who he says he is, and you have to look at him and listen for what he is promising. And it is a home. Beyond this present world. Now, I can't get to everything in this theologically dense passage, but I do want to direct our study of this passage in just two ways this morning. First, I want to explore the directions home. And then I want to explore how this home is inextricably tied to a person. So directions home and home tied to a person. So let's begin with our first point, the directions home. Look there in verse 2. Jesus tells us, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now that word place... In the Greek is the word topos or topos, depending on how you pronounce it. And we get the English word topography, which what? It emphasizes a real physical place. Now, modern secularism insists that we are only physical, which is not true. But it is true that we cannot escape our physicality. We are embodied souls connected to a locale, to a place. So we are this psychosomatic union. To be human is to have a real body and a real soul. And if you take one or the other away, we are less than human. So now it's important to remember this, because I think like Eastern philosophies are beginning to move into our sort of social imagination. Eastern spirituality does not see us each as individual, but rather as entities that are absorbed after death into a singular ubiquitous life force that is undifferentiated and it just kind of returns like a, like a drop of water into the sea. It's neither personal, individual, nor physical. But Jesus, he says something different. He is preparing a place, a home, a real one that is individually tailored just for us. And so we got to ask the question, what makes a home a home? Well, it's a place that has formed you. It's a place that you are forming. It's a place that fits your eyes and your ears. And maybe we could even say it fits your nostrils, your nose of sorts. And most of all, it's a place where you're known, where you're known by name. As you guys know, I'm a Houston kid, and I have this weird infatuation with the city. You know, other than having world-class sports teams, uh, Houston is not known for being the most romantic city. It's, it's big, it's industrious, it's diverse, it's a working city. And so my romance with the city surprises a lot of people. But when I think about it, it's not so much the city so much as the, my home in that city. Every time I return home to my parents' house, I am welcomed by this unique fragrance that can only be conjured up by the magical recipes of old Mexican cuisine. And that sight and the smells, they welcome me because I know them and they know me. Coming from an old-school Mexican immigrant home, my mother had the custom of cooking food, something fragrant after every calamity of any significance. So whether it's the savory smells of tamales or menudo or the sweeter smell of arroz con leche, that fragrance filled up the house as if it were its soul. That home comforted me. It comforted me when my older brother left the house. It comforted me when my high school girlfriend and I broke up. It comforted me when my grandparents passed away. When I had a fight with my dad, even then I knew the fragrant reconciling soul of this house would meet me and comfort me. There would still be a table with food welcoming the two of us back together. And even if we didn't have everything worked out, that home still calmed my troubled soul. Some of you have memories like that from your childhood. Or maybe it's just the sweet friendship, your your friend group from college. Or maybe some of you moved to Denver, looking, hoping to find it here under its blue skies and majestic mountains. But what is for sure is that you are a physical creature looking for a physical home, a physical place that has the ability in some measure to offer you respite and know you by name. Now, all of us want to go back to that place. But even if it were a great home, even if it were great, it's just a vapor of what Jesus is speaking about and offering here. See, even if you were to get back to that wondrous place in your imagination, it would not quell your longing for home because no home in this world can. And there will always be this experience of homelessness in this life. And so if you're new to Denver, I desperately want you to love it here. But I know for sure, however great your life here is, it will never be enough. It will leave you hungering and thirsting for something more because what your soul is looking for is what Jesus is pointing to in this passage. See, after he says that he goes to prepare a place for you with rooms, he says in verse 3, look there, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Now, that's quite a thing to say, Jesus, because, you know, if the disciples were honest, they absolutely have no clue on how to get there. And they desperately want to get to that home. So Thomas, who's famous for doubting, kind of, uh, you know, I think it's probably a little unfair. Uh, he wasn't there with all the rest of the disciples when Jesus was first resurrected. And so he's famous for saying, I won't believe until I see the scars in his hands, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, And so he's this one that asks this obvious question. Look at verse five. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Like, what are the directions, Jesus? Now, before I go any further, it's worth reminding us that, remember, they are celebrating the Passover dinner. So we're hearing this dinner conversation in this very ritualistic setting. And so I mentioned earlier that the Passover recalls Israel's famous history. So you'll remember, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh. He demands the release of his people. When Pharaoh declines, Moses unleashes 10 plagues. And when Pharaoh finally lets them go, Israel's part of the way out when Pharaoh changes his mind. And then Pharaoh sends his army to start chasing them. And so Israel gets trapped between the army and the Red Sea. And it looks like they're about to die. And everyone's panicking when miraculously the sea opens up. God makes a way. He makes a way. And this event is alluded to throughout the whole Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, it becomes a metaphor for our salvation. It's this massive display of God's power by way of providing a path. He provided a way. So in this troubled moment, they have troubled hearts. They're in panic. Jesus is providing a path, a way. But here's the thing. Thomas asks for directions, doesn't he? And that's That's when Jesus says those famous words. He says, well, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no one can get to this home. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the reason why this verse is so comforting is because Jesus is giving directions for the way home. Strangely, the same verse is what gives people trouble, not comfort, right? This is especially troubling to those who don't believe in Christ and his claim to uniqueness and exclusivity of him being the one true God, the way to God through his death and resurrection. You know, this is the the most intolerant aspect of our faith, partly because the way that we use that word tolerance has changed, hasn't it? You know, tolerance used to mean the capacity to endure disagreement over differing beliefs and still maintaining a meaningful relationship. Now, tolerance is an insistence that all beliefs and all practices and all values and all lifestyles are equal in truth and goodness. And Christianity cannot embrace that second definition because our faith stands and falls with the exclusivity of Christ as the way home to God. And listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to be combative when I bring this to your attention, but it has not slipped my notice that we are in an age of epistemological confusion. Uh, that's a big word. And what I mean by that is not only do we not agree on what is true, but we don't even agree on how we're going to agree on what is true, you see. Some people argue that there is no truth, nothing objective, nothing universal, nothing overarching, no meta-narrative that we can ultimately point to that is real. And that's how come you'll hear the refrain, well, you've got your truth and I've got my truth. And it's hard to know really this moment in history where all of this is heading, but we have seen transitions and revolutions on notions of truth throughout time. This isn't the first. You know, in the Middle Ages, it was accepted that there is indeed an established truth and that it did exist outside of ourselves and that it gave us answers to our biggest questions like, Where, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What happens to me when I die? And those established answers were passed on based on tradition. Tradition that had been handed down or what had been told to them, or what the church was teaching. And then you get to really kind of the Enlightenment. There's a pivot in the 17th and 18th century. It's particularly in Europe, an intellectual or a scientific revolution. And now what happens is truth is based on what we can verify. Truth is based on data. Truth is based on experimentation and creating falsification opportunities and running tests over and over again while controlling variables. And so truth now in this moment is the product of reason to arguments and experiments. Now, the whole time throughout history, there's always this remnant, people saying, no the answers to the really big questions that we have are revealed to us in the Bible, in God's word, which is the highest and most complete revelation of God. These are answers to our questions, to the big questions, the kind that can never be discovered in a laboratory. Like you can't discover the truth of human equality, of human dignity in a laboratory. And again, so there's always been Christians who said, yes, there's value in tradition, Yes, there is value in reason and science, but we also have this gift that is God-breathed. It's a revelation. It's the Bible. Fast forward now, 20th century, there's even another revolution where truth was neither tradition nor scientific, but now it's based on what our gut tells us. And so there's all these competing sources of authority, and it's all very confusing, Because people are all kind of appealing to different things and not really agreeing on a whole lot. And so the only truth they surmise and the only authority that exists is the one that is inside of ourselves. Like I decide what is true for me. And and this is very much the world that our children are growing up in. But in the midst of this confusion, Jesus is saying that there is both a universal claim, but this claim is still still somehow radically personal. And it's tied to scripture. It's still reasonable. It exceeds intellectual scrutiny. But at the end of the day, it is a word from the outside. It's received, not logically deduced. Jesus says, I am the way home. Like those are the directions. Now, if you find this unsettling, I, hear me, I really do understand. I would certainly like to think that all truths and all paths work. It would make things a whole lot more simple. But where Jesus here standing with us, he would have none of it. He would say, I am the only way and the only truth and the only life. And while I know you have every right to choose to be frustrated and upset and mad that not all the paths work, you could do something different. You could choose the path that celebrates that any of the paths work. And not only does the path work, but you and me, the mess that we are, are invited home home, the only place that can cure our troubled hearts. Listen, if you were to walk outside this church and a car were to pull up and rolls down the window is this anxious man driving, and in the passenger seat is a very, very pregnant woman, clearly in labor, and if that man were to ask you, hey, which way to the hospital, it is not helpful or good for you to say, all the roads will take you there just follow them you know why cuz it's not true but that young father and that young mother will find great relief knowing that you know the way to the hospital a place to be cared for and a place where mother's pain will turn into unexplainable joy so rejoice jesus gives directions home jesus is the way Now, the second point, as you you might have noticed, is related to the first one. Not only does Jesus give directions home, but when we arrive, what we learn is that home is inextricably tied to a person. When Jesus finishes that titanic verse, verse 6, saying, I'm the way, the truth, and life, then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And by doing that, he's connecting all of the dots. And and let me explain and follow me on this. So Jesus begins by saying, there's this house with many rooms that he's preparing. And Thomas says, well, how do we get there? And Jesus says, well, I am the way. And you expect Jesus to say, no one comes to the house with many rooms except through me. That's not what he does. He says, No one comes to the Father except through me. Home is inextricably tied to a person. So the focus here isn't so much on real estate, you see. So Philip, he's one of the disciples we don't know a whole lot about. He's not mentioned a lot, but here he is. He asks a very understandable question in verse 8. Look there. He says, well, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Now, there's a major, major problem, and Philip is well aware of this problem. And let me explain by taking us back to the Old Testament, to the Exodus, one more time, with God rescuing his people. So after God rescues Israel from the Egyptian army, which was like the superpower of their time, you would think that after all of these amazing miracles that the people of God would be highly motivated to be obedient. But what you find is quite the opposite. They fall into deep rebellion and deep disobedience. And at one point, God calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, you read this for yourself, his brother Aaron decides to take everyone's jewelry, craft a bunch of idols, show it to the Israelites, and then he says, hey, everyone, look, here is your God who rescued you out of Egypt. And then they begin to worship it, and they throw a total rager. Like, it is bad. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, you know, with you know, the Ten Commandments, he sees them, and, it meets, and it's crushing. It's jarring. It's angering. And like Moses loses it. And I mean, he is at the end of his rope. You really, in fact, you'll get a sense of Moses's spiritual exhaustion for several chapters. And so in Exodus 33, Moses is exhausted and he asks God to please just show me your glory. Like, God, I'm worn out. We're terrible. I don't know what to do next. Just show me your glory. And so God says, well, I'll let you see the very, very, very back end, the train of my glory, but you cannot see my face and live. Now, when I say that, it's, it's, it's hard for human beings like us to understand this. And the reason why is you and I are extremely comfortable with our sin. It's I know that sounds weird to say it like that, but sin is such a part of our existence. It's kind of normalized and we know it's bad, but it doesn't feel that bad, right? And at the same time, we know that God is holy and we have no idea just what that means. We just know that he is holy. And so it's really hard for us to imagine that God is so glorious and so holy and that we are so sinful and so corrupt that if we were to look at God in the face, it would mean our instant death. In the very first chapter in John, John writes, he says, no one has ever seen God. And listen, Philip absolutely knows this. I mean, listen, of course, we've seen manifestations of God, like a burning bush or columns of fire or clouds or whatever. But the face of God, whatever that could mean, would instantly incinerate us by the weight and brilliance of God's glory. And yet there is Philip making the request, Lord, show us the Father. And why does Philip ask this ridiculous question? It's because even though he knows better, there is still something incurable in the human soul that longs to see the face of God. You know, there's this famous British philosopher. A few of you will know his name. His name is Bertrand Russell. You know what book he's most famous for? He writes a book that's entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. So with a title like that, you know this guy is not a friend of Christianity. In a letter to his lover in 1916, he has this really vulnerable moment, and he pens these words. Why I'm not a Christian guy. The center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision. That's an old way of saying like a vision of the face of God where we'd be able to see it. God, I do not find it. I do not think it's to be found, but the love of it is my life. It is the actual spring of life within me. Now, you and I are not prone to express our in- subconscious inner longings with such kind of poetic language, but I promise you, those words could have been yours as well. One of my favorite quotes, and you've heard me use it before, by St. Augustine or Augustine in the fourth century, he starts off the first, very first lines of his most famous work, The Confessions. He says this. He says, Lord You have made us for yourself, and my heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, to be face to face with you. We incurably want it. Like an addict, we want it. And you guys look at me. What I am telling you right now is played out on the pages of human history. Every human that has ever existed, and I don't care your socioeconomic background, I don't care your sexual orientation, male, female, or the color of your skin, we all were made for God. And so there exists in us this chasm. And you and I can drive truckloads of accomplishments, truckloads of resumes and sex and money and vacations and any of it and all of it and all of it disappears into this chasm and that hole is never plugged up. And the world turns on humankind's feeble attempts to hide from it or to fill it, this yearning for the eternal We need the face of God, and we cannot have it. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Now, if that question was indeed a crazy one, then Jesus' response is even crazier. Look at verse 9, back in your Bibles. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Uh, And listen, I, I want you to notice that Jesus is not spiritualizing this. He did not say to Philip, if you look at me in the right way, Philip, or if you will follow my teachings closely, then you will see God the Father. Not at all. Like Jesus is like speaking in the past tense. He's like, whoever has seen me, has seen me, has already seen the Father. Now listen, a good and devout Jewish rabbi would indeed be inclined to say something like, if you follow my teachings, you can know God. But what absolutely no good Jewish rabbi would say is, if you're looking at me, you're looking at God. Now listen, Jesus is not prone to overstatement. Like this isn't just some one-off weird verse. A few chapters earlier, he had already announced to the masses, he's like, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me has seen him who sent me. Philip was being shown the face of God and he didn't know it. And he was still asking to see the face of God. In other words, for Philip, and I imagine for a lot of people in this room, Jesus did not inform and form his understanding of God. And this is the question that I have for you. What forms and informs what you think about God? This is an extremely relevant question. You know, for many, they take broad strokes from the Bible but then they put on their lens of their worst possible pain points and then they sprinkle in some kind of interesting teachings from Buddhism and maybe there's a few winsome online personalities and then you mash in the ethics from your favorite political party and there you have it. That's what informs what you think God is like and sometimes we call him Jesus. Again, listen, I know I'm being loud because I'm Latino, I am not trying to be combative by bringing this to our attention. I'm just trying to hold up a mirror to the spirituality of our social imagination. Jesus is who he is, and I want us to resist the temptation to mold him into our image or our culture's image. We want to allow him to contradict us. Let him correct us. Let him mold us into his image. And I, listen, I know that there is this r- temptation to say, listen, you know, all good faith religions are interchangeable. But you need to understand that the differences between the major points of these religions and worldviews are really, really significant. I mean, at a surface level, they can all look similar because broadly speaking, right, all religions are calling people to be kind and honest. And so there is very much overlap. There is indeed. Confucius will say, don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. And then Jesus will say, well, do unto others what you want, them, or what you want done unto you. And yeah, no, those aren't exactly the same, but there's overlap, of course. But once you get past the primary level to the deepest level of these religions, it all falls apart. No Buddhist thinks a hin- that thinks Hinduism works. No Muslim thinks that Christianity is true. And it's really only pretentious people here in the West who tend to say that they're all the same. When you look carefully at what they're saying, you realize that they are radically different and that the differences matter. Steve Turner says, and I should just tell you right now, I have no idea who Steve Turner is, but I found this quote. He says, I believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the two that I looked at were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. (laughs) Can you see the point he's making? And this particular passage, chapter 14, complicates it even more drastically because Christianity is even more different than those other religions, than those religions are from themselves. Jesus, listen to me, is not pointing to the way and the truth and the life, he is claiming to be those things. And so I want to say this very carefully, but listen carefully. You are not saved by the teachings of Jesus. You are saved by Jesus. And in this life, when troubles come, and they will, your heart will desperately need comfort. And that comfort comes by the hope of a home, and that home is more than just real estate. Home is inextricably tied to God, to Jesus. In the arms of Jesus is when you are home. Okay, this has been a long one. Thank you for your attention. I'll finish with just one final thought here, Some of you have experienced the pain of this world, maybe a lot like the disciples, the pain of betrayal, the pain of denial, and the pain of loss of a loved one. And if you have not experienced those things, there are no free passes in this world. Your sad day will come. Our hearts will be troubled in this life. And so Jesus promises this home beyond this world. And so John 14, far from trying to be so troubling, it's meant to comfort you. It's meant to give you directions home. It's it's meant to show you that home is tied to him. But that comfort from understanding, it comes from the understanding the, uh, the exclusivity of Jesus, of who he is, of what Jesus has done to purchase you. And I know that word exclusive, that is like a painful word. It is. It is for me too. But though the truth of Jesus is quite exclusive, the offer of Jesus is quite inclusive. You know, Jesus loves that word whoever or that word whosoever, sometimes it's translated. You even see it in our passage today in verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whosoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. You know, that's not the only time he uses that word whosoever. He does it all the time. And in fact, in the most famous verse of the whole Bible, Jesus would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That whosoever would believe in me would not perish but have everlasting life whosoever believes in me gets me gets home so come home come to jesus once again amen amen